turning in your Bibles, if you will, again to Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning, verses 1 to 14. Nehemiah 6. I don't know about you, but I often get a little uncomfortable when I hear Christians talking about spiritual warfare. It seems that some people go way off into fantasy land there a little bit. Though uh, our battle with the evil, evil one is a very biblical reality. But when the Bible speaks of it, the emphasis is on the subtlety of Satan's activity. Ephesians 6 talks about the wiles of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2 talks about uh, we dare not be unaware of his schemes. For 2 Corinthians 11 says he comes to us as an angel of light. Different picture than we often have of the evil one. But Satan is a clever, scheming devil. His intentions are vicious, but his methods are slick. Our text this morning never mentioned Satan. But here it describes pretty well, I think, some of the schemes that he employs. Here the assault is on Nehemiah as his opponents try to stop the work of God, the building of these walls around Jerusalem. But folks, these are the same tactics that he uses today against this church, against your family, against your personal life as you try to serve the Lord. This is very relevant to us, even though it happened many, many, many hundreds of years ago. Let me read Nehemiah 6, 1 to 14. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and Arab, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project. I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. That you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about your Jerusalem, that there is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I sent to the house, uh, one, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delilah, son of Mehetabel, who was shut up in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me 
so that I would not commit a sin, so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. In this text, there are three examples of the vicious evil schemes that we might encounter at the hands of the evil one. That gives us three points to consider. The first is this. Beware of the distraction of respectability. Beware of the distraction of respectability. Or kids, if that's too much to write, don't get sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked. Once not long after we were married, Jane and I were in a convenience store when it got robbed. It was over before anybody knew what happened. The key was distraction. Two men came in. One of them came to us. We were the only ones in the store, the only customers in the store. Asked us where something was. It was way off and far into the store, and we took him down there to show him. And the other man began to pay for some little purchase and then asked the clerk for, to, to get him something that was behind the clerk. And as the clerk turned around to pick up whatever the man had asked for, he grabbed the money out of the till, and out the door they both went, leaving us all standing there wondering what happened to us. At the most crucial moment, when the cash register was open, the clerk allowed himself to be distracted from his most important task. That's the tactic Nehemiah's opponents try to use on him in these first verses. They try to distract him from the work of God. Now, they know Nehemiah is a man of some resolve, and so somehow they must bait him, must distract him with something. And the bait they offered was a sense of respectability. Think about it. Nehemiah has been fighting these opponents every step of the way since he arrived in Jerusalem. They had mocked his project from the beginning. For a while, they even threatened a military attack against him. But in spite of all of that, the work was now near completion. And finally, they seemed to realize this man's going to be successful. And so they sent him an invitation to come and sit down with them in, in, in a neutral place, in a, in a village in the plain of Ono, which was some ways away from uh, Jerusalem, and discuss the situation. Wow. Nehemiah must have been excited at this development. Finally, the powers that be were recognizing the validity, the success of what he was doing. Finally, he was getting some respect. So we might expect him to drop everything and go to this meeting. Would it be wise to seize this opportunity to finally sit down with the powerful and influential to sit down as their equal and discuss the situation? Oh, beware of the distraction of respectability. Nehemiah was not flattered. He was not impressed. He smelled something rotten in all this. Call him a cynic. But he knew this people had been against him all the way, and he doubted that they had suddenly changed their heart. He thought they were out to harm him. The only problem is he couldn't prove that. But what he could prove, what he knew for sure, was that for him to go talk, he had to stop the work. Even if their motives were pure as the driven snow, He could not be diverted from the task that God had given him. And so in verse 3, he said, no. You want to meet in, oh no, oh no, he says. 
I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Reminds me of something that I read uh, uh, about the late uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest English preachers in history, I suspect. He was once once invited to debate on the radio a well-known atheistic philosopher. Many people urged him to take advantage of this great opportunity, but his reply was simply, God has called me to preach the gospel to people who are lost and under his wrath. I can't be diverted from that task to sit down and discuss in some detached manner the possibility of God's existence for the entertainment of the listeners. That was Nehemiah's response. He could not be distracted under the guise of respectability before the world. Four times they asked him, and four times he gave him the same answer, no. Folks, the history of the church is fully, full of examples of churches and, and organizations and uh, ministries that began against all odds to do the will of God. But when they started to get successful, they suddenly gained respectability. And that was the beginning of their downfall. They lost their focus on doing what God had sent them to do and began to redefine how their now successful mission uh, might look in more respectable, uh, agreeable terms, more suitable to the broader public. And it happens on the personal level, too. Beware of the desire to be liked and approved of, or to be considered legitimate by the world around you, the very people who reject what you stand for. Even in the name of maintaining a good Christian witness, you can get distracted from serving the Lord by trying to be respectable until you're unwilling to stand for anything because it's unpopular. I have written in the flyleaf of my old Bible, which is so worn out that I don't even use it anymore, a quotation from Dr. Robert Cook, which I wrote down as a college student a lot of years ago. It goes like this. Purpose for the individual weakens in direct proportion to his eagerness to be accepted by his peers, by his generation. Purpose for the individual weakens in direct proportion to his eagerness to be accepted by his generation. Beware of the distraction of respectability. That's the first lesson. In verses 5 to 9, there's a second truth. Be strong in the face of demoralizing rumors. Be strong in the face of demoralizing rumors. If you want an easier version of that, ignore the lies. Ignore the lies. These days, everyone knows that politics can be dirty. Guess what? Politics was dirty in Nehemiah's day, too. What do you do in politics if someone refuses to compromise, refuses to play the game, refuses to comfortably fit into the political mainstream? What do you do with a crusader who can't be controlled? 
Especially, how do you handle it if he is knowing some success which you know threatens the status quo? Well, one very effective approach is, uh, approach is to make up some outrageous but believable stories about him and leak them to the press. And we'll bring him to his knees. You can't prove you didn't do something. That's called playing political hardball. And that's exactly what they did to Nehemiah here in verses 5 to 9. Four times he asked Nehemiah politely to stop what he was doing and come and talk to them. And he said no. Whether they meant that meant well in that or not, who knows. But the fifth time they asked him was different. This time the man bringing the letter was the aide of Sanballat, his arch enemy here. And this time he came with a letter unsealed, open for whoever wants to read it. And here's what the letter said. It is reported. Reliable sources confirm that you are actually plotting a revolt against the king of Persia. And are using religion to build your following until one of your prophets suddenly proclaims you're the king of Judah. This unfortunate report is circulating back to the king who will undoubtedly consider that treason. Now, wouldn't you like to sit down and talk with us? Perhaps we could help. Here's political hardball at its finest. The rumor mill, the big lie, the baseless accusation, the official leak, the unnamed inside sources, making statements designed to quickly get out of control and spread as facts, and the clear threat They intend to use it to bring him down. This is another tactic that Satan uses against God's servants. Demoralizing rumors. It's amazing how quickly one malicious accusation gets turned into fact until you're hearing it from a dozen different sources. Rumors are just delicious. We love them. And may I suggest that churches have about the most efficient rumor mill anywhere. So why are these rumors so useful to the enemies of God? What effects do they produce that Satan loves? Well, we read it in verse 9. Nehemiah says, they were all trying to frighten us thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. Rumors and false accusations discourage and demoralize and make people want to give up. Isn't that how you feel when some false accusation is circulated against you? At first you get angry. It's not right. It's not true. It's not fair. How dare they? And then you get frustrated. You realize you cannot follow people around and make sure that everything is said is true about you. And then you just get dismayed and want to quit. It's too much to fight. But see, the point is, whether you quit God's work to defend yourself, or quit to prove that the rumors are not true, or quit out of weariness or discouragement, when you quit, the enemy wins. We need to learn from Nehemiah, be strong in the face of demoralizing Rumors. So how did Nehemiah handle the rumor mill? Well, first he sent word back to Sanballat 
the person from whom he heard it and simply denied that it was true. He says, nothing like what you're saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. He also kept his wits about him. Understanding that his enemies are trying to demoralize him, he refused to play into their hands by getting discouraged and quitting. Instead, he entrusted himself to the Lord, prayed that God would give him the strength to stand firm. Folks, I tell you, this is the most difficult thing to handle in the ministry. When you hear things circulating that impugn your motives, I don't know about you, my response is I want to quit. I either want to quit and spend my time defending myself or just get discouraged in time to just hang it up. I'm sure you have the same struggle with when rumors circulate about you. When somebody takes you on and accuses you and tries you and condemns you without a hearing, without you even being able to answer the charges that you know are not true. But folks, God has called us to perseverance. If people don't think well of us, so be it. Our task is to be faithful. At the same time, I call us as a congregation to resolve not to do business this way at the chapel. We must fight against the spread of negative reports. We must learn to speak directly and truthfully when we have concerns with one another rather than leaking accusations. This church needs to be a place where we are safe with one another, where we know the truth will be spoken in love with mutual trust and mutual protection that's befitting the family of God. Well, Satan didn't through with Nehemiah yet. There's one more. Our third point. Never rationalize sin. Never rationalize sin or don't excuse sinning would be another way to say that. You know, we humans, humans have an uncanny ability to rationalize every crazy thing that we want to do until somehow it makes perfect sense. We do it as a society. We rationalize government taking people's hard-earned property to give it to someone who didn't earn anything in the name of things being equal. We rationalize the killing of unborn children to protect somebody's privacy. And we do the same thing on a personal level. We rationalize every kind of wrong behavior because it feels right to me. We, we can turn black into white. We can turn evil into good. We, we can make anything we want to do seem not only acceptable, but the only reasonable option. How many times have I heard people say of sin, your sinful behavior, what was I to do? I had no choice. It was the only thing I could do. When Nehemiah's enemies knew how, how easy it is for us and how prone we are to rationalize sin, so when all else failed, they tried this approach. They planned to scare Nehemiah into sinning, to protect himself. That would not only discredit him before the people, but it would bring upon him God's wrath. So look how they attempted to do this. One day, Shemaiah, the prophet, a man in the ministry, a man who was apparently uh, confined to his home, a shut-in minister, called and asked him if he could visit him. Nehemiah must have trusted him. He went to his house. 
Who wouldn't go talk to a prophet of God? Who, who couldn't get out of his house? Who asked you to come? Well, Shemaiah had some inside information. Nehemiah, there's a plot afoot to kill you. Maybe tonight. But he also had a plan to save Nehemiah. Come with me. And let's go into the temple and hide. They'll never think to look there. They won't come in there. Wow, what a friend. What a compassionate man of God. Well, maybe. The only problem was Nehemiah understood that even as the governor, he was not allowed to go into the temple. God's law had forbidden that. Only the priest could go in there. So what exactly is the issue here? Does the threat to Nehemiah's life justify him disobeying God? I mean, God wouldn't want him to be killed, would he? This must be a special case, right? No. He's being asked to rationalize sin. Now, we don't often have threats made on our lives, but we too are tempted to rationalize sin. We are so inclined to protect ourselves and to make sure that we feel good and maintain our comfort level that the minute obedience to God seems to disrupt our, 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 our well-being, we find a way to rationalize. God could not possibly expect me to be obedient in this situation. I mean, would God expect you to be faithful to him to not sin, even if it was going to mean losing your job? Yes. You don't rationalize sin to save your job. What if it meant the loss of someone you dearly love? What if they threatened to walk out on you? Could God expect you to be faithful at that cost? Yes. You don't rationalize sin to save a romance. What if obeying God meant your life dream is going to go down the tubes? And you never realize your potential. Would God ask you to obey him even if all your life's ambition is to be cast on the rocks? Yes. You don't rationalize sin to save your dreams. Oh, but what if you're in pain and hurting and there's no end in sight? Wouldn't you be justified in disobeying God in light of your pain? Surely God would not expect you to be faithful now. Oh, yes, he would. You don't even rationalize sin to save your life. That was Nehemiah's response in verse 11. Should a man like me run away? Or should a man like me go into the temple to save my life? No, I won't go. Nehemiah realized this was a false dilemma. It was not God who sent Shemaiah to suggest that he sinned. God does not work that way. God does not work contrary to his word. God does not try to get you to do what he forbids you to do. God does not try to get you to do what he forbids you to do in his word. I don't care how you feel about it. That's just true. 
So Nehemiah had to conclude this was, must be a scheme of the enemy. Hiring a prophet, hiring a minister to suggest that he rationalize sin against God. You see, the fact that you heard something in church or heard it from a minister does not make it right. If it does not conform to God's word, it's not true. It's that simple. Don't do it. Never rationalize sin. So this morning I call us to the same single-minded, simple faith and obedience that Nehemiah had. Obeying God's word no matter what the cost, no matter who suggests otherwise. We don't have to understand everything. We don't have to be comfortable. We don't have to protect our interests. God is able to handle all those things. We are simply called to obey him, never rationalizing doing anything else. Dear people, if you're a child of God, he's called you to something. Your calling may look nothing like mine, but it's just as real. You're called to labor in your work. You're called to build a family. You're called to live as a Christian. You're called to be salt and light in this world in whatever capacity God has, uh, has, has, has put you there. And if God called you to serve him, wherever that might be, you can expect opposition from the evil one just like Nehemiah experienced. The distraction of respectability. Trying to sidetrack you with the promise of being something to your peers. Demoralizing rumors. Trying to get you to quit by false accusation, by twisting the truth. And being encouraged to rationalize sin, trying to get you to disobey God in order to protect yourself. Now the truth is, none of us have withstood all those subtle assaults without a failure. We've probably been distracted from our calling by the prospect of being thought respectable. Demoralizing rumors probably taken their toll on you as they have on me. No one's immune. And even the best of us have talked ourselves into doing things that we regret. Our tendency to rationalize sin is frightening. But as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we're reminded that we're not in this alone. We're not just left our own devices to outwit and resist the evil one. And we're not abandoned when we fall, when we failed. In Romans 8, we're reminded that God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us while we were still his enemies, will surely now give us everything that we need to live for him. The book of Hebrews reminds us that this Jesus, who went to the cross out of love for us, is now ascended to heaven to intercede, to pray for us. And we can now draw near to him anytime, anywhere, and find mercy for all of our failures and grace to help in our time of need. So as we come to the table this morning, we come to Jesus seeking mercy and forgiveness because we could not save ourselves. That's how we came the first time. And now we come again seeking grace and strength and mercy and forgiveness because we still can't save ourselves. But he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, 
Sometimes in our crazy moments, we think we could take on the evil one and conjure up some great battle and we're going to be triumphant. And the truth is, Lord, we, we can't handle that for a moment. And apart from your grace, we will surely fail. But make us wise. Cause us to see, Lord, in the things you revealed in your word, the wiles, the schemes of the evil one, that we won't fall into the same trap again and again. We know we've fallen into those traps sometimes. Deliver us from them. Father, as we think about these things, help us to not just let it pass, but to chew on it and see how it applies in our life. See where the troubles have been created and how we, ought to, how we can stay away from that again. Father, as we come to the table this morning, we delight to know that you're full of mercy and grace and that you receive us anew. Oh, Father, we would come to confess again our confidence in you. In Jesus' name, amen.